You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas, I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Again, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we're going to spend a few weeks looking at a few different selections from the book of Isaiah, these key prophetic prophecies that, that, that really anticipate the coming of the Christ. And as we look through them, of course, my hope is that our hearts would be prepared to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ as he comes into the world as God's gift for the forgiveness of our sins. And so let's um, turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7, and let's, let's read this text together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll begin our time together in the Word. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning as beggars hungry for your word, hunger, hungry for the, the refreshing truths of your gospel promises. Lord, starving for more of you in our lives, more of your truth, more of your love. And Father, we are thankful that as we approach this Christmas season, Lord, that you have sent us such a wonderful and precious Savior, Lord, who has satisfied the longings of our every heart. And Father, as we think about this broken world in which we live, and Lord, as we think about this Christmas season, Lord, our hearts yearn even more for the coming King, for the Messiah, for the promised Christ child that was so prophesied and anticipated here in Isaiah. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at this text, Lord, that we who are weary, we who are burdensome, Lord, that we would be comforted by the hope, not only of Christ's initial coming, Christmas, but Lord, as we look forward to his return as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. You know, it's throughout the, the history of men, kingdoms have come and kingdoms have gone. They have arisen and they have fallen. Governments have been established and then they've crumbled. You know, we're doing a, a program for Jude with his homeschool, my son, called Classical Conversations. And one of the things that they learn is they memorize what's called the timeline song. And it's this timeline, it's about like a 14-minute song that kind of helps the kids learn the history of the whole, whole world, pretty much, from, from the beginning to the very, to where we are today. And it's just amazing as we listen to that song, nations just come and go, rise and fall, come and go again. And it's just amazing as you look at human history, how frequently and temporary those human governments really are. Strangely enough, government instability is the only stability throughout human history. <laughs> you know it's going to happen. And with wars and rumors of wars, as the Lord Jesus told us would happen, with dynasties and political rivalries, with revolts and revolutions, the world seems constantly teetering on the edge. Over the millennia, I think human, 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 humanity has experimented with, with different forms of government. But none of those forms of government have ushered us into utopia. Hasn't arrived. Even in our own country, it is an impressive achievement for a, a democracy, a constitutional democracy like the United States to last for 241 years. That's an achievement in and of itself. But yet, even, even our American Republic seems so fragile in recent days, particularly in light of the global instability and often irreconcilable visions for the future of our country. Even that seems unstable nowadays. As uh, Winston Churchill once said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. <laughs> and I think he's onto something there, right? Like democracy is the, the crowning political achievement of the West, and as great as it can be, it is far from perfect. It is not the perfect form of government. Though democracy seems to curtail the excesses of wickedness in the human heart more than other types of government, no human government will ever bring lasting peace and perfect justice in the world. But yet, one day, as we see from Isaiah here, right? One day, lasting peace and justice will come. But it's not through democracy. No, peace and justice will come through a monarchy. You see, throughout human history, our kings and queens have become tyrants. As the saying goes, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've seen that time and time again throughout human history. Kings and rulers cling to power, cling to their authority, and they use it to exalt themselves, and often they use that power to oppress the weak. However, from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, this text before us today, we see that the future peace that we long for, particularly this time of year at Christmas, this peace that we long for will arrive through the reign of a king, a monarch. And this isn't just any king. No, this is the divine king. This is the Messiah. Jesus is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And what makes his reign remarkably different is that in Christ there is no corruption. There's no corruption, no sin. He has no sin. 
as we look to Jesus, as we look to this gift that God has given us in Christ, we see perfect purity. We see righteousness. We see goodness. King Jesus abounds in love for his people, and he always does what is right. And he wields his authority, his omnipotent authority, unquestioned authority, and he wields it not to harm his people, but to heal his people. You see, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, and as we're looking to these passages from the book of Isaiah, we are, it causes our hearts to anticipate and long for the arrival of this king. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So as we look to Isaiah 9, 1-7, through 7, we learn a precious truth, a truth that we must cling to. And so here's the sermon in a sentence. In sum, in the arrival of Jesus, God gives us an eternal king. In the arrival of Jesus, God gives us an eternal king. And as we look to the description of this eternal king from Isaiah 9, 1-7, through 7, we're going to see just how sweet and wonderful of a gift this eternal king is. This king that we celebrate his arrival this Christmas season. So let's first, as we dive into Isaiah 9, let's look at verses 1 through 3. And one of the first things we observe about this king is that Jesus illuminates the darkness of despair. He illuminates the darkness of despair. You see, the prophecy of this future king comes in the book of Isaiah in the midst of some distressing news, particularly some news that arrives at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 7. So if you think back to Isaiah chapter 7, you can flip over there just to kind of make yourself acquainted with that chapter. But, but we see that during the reign of King Ahaz, this rebellious king against the Lord, he received news that both Syria and Ephraim were preparing to mount an assault on the people. And in seven, chapter 7 verse 2, we are told that the heart of Ahaz and the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. As they hear about this coming invasion from this, this people from Syria, from Ephraim, we see that the, the people are terrified, they're nervous, they're anxious. And we see that the Lord then decides to, to give an invitation to King Ahaz. We see that the Lord offers to give a sign of salvation to Ahaz in chapter 7. And this is a sign that Ahaz actually rejects. I don't need a sign. Nevertheless, the Lord gives him a sign anyway, and he gives him the sign of Emmanuel that we see in chapter 7, verse 14. You can look there, right? Chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, she, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which of course we know means God with us. But yet Ahaz's distrust and rebelliousness against the Lord actually ends up bringing judgment upon the people. And that judgment is going to come through the military might of the empire of Assyria. However, we see that even though this judgment is going to come, and the Lord says it's going to come, we see that with this judgment, God's grace is going to come along with it. You see, the consequences of the judgment of this Assyrian empire coming and, and wrecking havoc on God's people, we see that it's going to be severe. Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 8 verse 21 through 22, right before the passage that we're looking at today. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. They will pass through the land 
greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. You see, we see as as all of Isaiah chapter 8 and the end of verse 7 is anticipating that, that judgment is coming for God's people. These Assyrian pagan rebels against God are going to actually have the victory over God's people. And we see that these consequences of of Israel's rebellion and distrust against God, it's severe. The land of Israel, Isaiah says, will fall into a, a thick darkness. There will be distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, Isaiah says. Yet, notice the turn in chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So what Isaiah is telling the people, he says, you may be in anguish now. Suffering is coming. You are going to suffer under the weighty consequences of your own sinful rebellion. But Isaiah tells the people in this glorious promise that there is a day coming where there will be no more gloom. No more gloom. The despair that you're experiencing now, Isaiah says, is going to be lifted as as hope arrives. And as Isaiah continues in this prophecy here in chapter 9, he describes how in the land of Zebulun, which isn't referring to down the street, right? But but, but Zebulun in Israel. Zebulun in the land of Naphtali, that, that contempt was set upon the land. But in the future hope, we see God is going to make a glorious way of the sea. So Isaiah, who who is quite the poet, he brings this image of darkness and light to try to capture the dramatic transformation from the oppression the people are experiencing now to the peace that will one day come. You see, the kingdom now is oppressed in the dark tyranny of Assyria. And that kingdom, that Israel, will one day experience a great light. A light will shine. A light of hope. The light that is the hope of man. The child is coming to be born. The Emmanuel child and the promised Messiah is that light in the midst of the darkness of God's judgment. As Jesus himself would tell us in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus illuminates. He shines through the darkness and the despair of human sin. That through Christ, through his reign and rule, through that reign and rule, he provides hope to those who have no hope. He gives comfort to those who are in anguish. He justifies those who are under condemnation. He protects those who are under affliction. He shines on those who dwell in the darkness. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. And we see that as Isaiah is describing what this day of hope and this day of peace will bring, we see that the arrival of this Messianic king will not just bring the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but it will bring an expansion of that kingdom. It will go forth. The kingdom, Isaiah says, will be expanded beyond the sea, beyond the Jordan, becoming a Galilee of the nation. You see, and this is just what Jesus would do, right? As he comes, as he brings his kingdom into the world, he comes and he would begin his worldwide mission 
by teaching in the region of Galilee. But it didn't stay in Galilee, did it? From there, Jesus started to preach and herald the kingdom of God, but that kingdom would eventually go forth throughout Judea. And as the apostles take the gospel, it would go into Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, even down here in Wilson, North Carolina, of all places, right? The message of the king is being heralded. His kingdom is spreading. The kingdom promises here in Isaiah 9 are not, not only for ethnic Israel, but this is for all who by faith submit to the reign of the coming king. And if you're a Christian, you have by faith trusted in this king for your salvation, and you've submitted to this king as the, the Lord of your life. You've confessed him as the true king of the earth. And we see that those who are in this kingdom, that the, the boundaries of the kingdom of God will be ever increasing, ever expanding. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. You see, in addition to the, the multiplication and the expansion of God's kingdom, you see that joy will increase along with that kingdom. Joy like a farmer on the day of a fruitful harvest. You see, instead of having our enemies plunder us, Isaiah says we will divide the spoil. The gloom and despair of God's judgment are now lifted as the light of the Son of God has come into the world. In our own lives, you and I, we can often find ourselves a lot like Israel here in the midst of gloom and despair. And you know, and the holidays tend to bring that out in us for a lot of people. Christmas for a lot of times is a time of great joy and, and gladness and family, but for many, it's a time of great difficulty. You can feel gloomy and even despair. And as we deal with the consequences of our own sinful actions sometimes, the consequences of our sin can be weighty and severe. You know, we deal with the effects of, of strained relationships and friendships with others. We can have our sin contribute to a marriage that is filled with tension and awkwardness. And we can grow disheartened by the disappointments and the heartbreaks of life. And as we deal with just the effects of living in a sin-tainted world, this fallen world in which we live marred by sin, we can live in the darkness of oppression. It is all around us. You don't have to look very far. Just watch the news for a few minutes. And you will know that this world that we live in is broken. You see, we know our sin, and you know what it means to, to suffer under the affliction of this broken world. Many of you have tasted death of loved ones. You've wept your tears, you've nursed your wounds that others have inflicted upon you. And today may be a day in which you, you feel, like Israel, in anguish. Take heart. The hope of Christmas is that the King has come and He is coming again. As He comes, as Jesus, the promised King, comes, Jesus lifts up our gloomy hearts and He gives us unceasing joy a joy that multiplies, that expands. And the joy in our hearts swells and, and expands as the king enters into his kingdom. And we possess this joy because King Jesus is glorious. And he is coming soon to consummate his kingdom and establish his kingdom forevermore. So Jesus, we see first in the text, he illuminates our despair. 
And precisely, he does this precisely because, the second point, he liberates us from oppression. He liberates us from oppression. We see this in verse 4 through 5 in the text. That Jesus liberates us from oppression. In verse 4, you'll notice that there's a bit of a pronoun shift that takes place. A, a pronoun change that marks a shift in this passage. And so if you're reading through Isaiah for the first time, there's this kind of sense of discovery as you're reading this chapter. So imagine that you, you've never heard this text before, right? This is the first time you're reading about all this. And you hear at the beginning of chapter 9, after this great message of judgment and darkness and gloom that is about to come upon you, and then you begin to read in the beginning of chapter 9 that, that a light is going to come. Joy is going to come. And you might be thinking, how? <laughs> right? How is joy going to come? How is light going to come in the midst of this terrible situation in which we find ourselves? And in verse 4, we begin to see this Him who will show up and who will break the yoke of his burden. Now, the Assyrian Empire took great pride in the heavy yoke of oppression that they placed upon the people they conquered. However, there is one, Isaiah says, who is going to come and break the yoke of oppression. A similar day of victory, Isaiah says, like the day of Midian. Now, you might be wondering, what is, what is Midian? What is Isaiah referencing here? Well, look back to the book of Judges. And you'll see that it was there at Midian that God had the unexpected deliverer Gideon bring victory for God's people. So you can read about Gideon in Judges chapter 6 through 7. You don't have to turn there now. You can go back and reference it later. But this is what Isaiah is referring to, this event. God takes Gideon's army. I'll, I'll rehearse it for you just in case, in case you don't remember or you haven't heard it. God takes Gideon's army. And you'll remember that eventually God reduces Gideon's army to about 300 people. And they're going to go and take on the mighty Midianites, great in number and in power. However, they did so not with swords, but they went, 300 people, with trumpets to go defeat this mighty enemy. And according again, as you read that account, you see that the Lord struck terror into the hearts of the Midianites who begin to turn their swords against themselves while, while Gideon and his army standing on the outside. And so this small unlikely army liberated the people of God from the Midianite oppression. And again, it's clear as you read Gideon's story that it's not because Gideon's some powerful military leader. It's, it's because God is powerful and God brought the victory. That's the only explanation. So Isaiah recalls this event for the people of God. Remember what God did at Midian. Remember the unexpected unplanned, miraculous victory that God brought at Midian, God is going to do something again just like that. Isaiah recalls this event to remind the people that victory over oppressors will only come by the power of God's king through this divine king. The rod and the staff of the oppressors will be broken as on the day of Midian. You see, in the same way, in the darkness, of the cross of Christ. It is there that the light of liberation, the light of God's deliverance for human beings bursts forth. That it's through the death of Christ and through his atoning blood, this is what sets us up for, for the freedom from our bondage of sin that it entangles us and enslaves us. You see, by faith in Jesus, in this promised king, in this Emmanuel, 
Through faith in him, we receive the joyous liberation from Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Satan's kingdom was defeated by implosion, just like the Midianites. They turned their swords against themselves. And as Satan turned the weapon of death on Christ and killed Jesus, so too did Satan unintendingly kill his own kingdom and defeat it. Because the death of Christ was not the end for Jesus, was it? But on the third day, he victoriously rose from the grave in resurrection, glory, and might. And so the death of Jesus Christ brings liberation, freedom for sinners like us, that we who, who sink under the weightiness of our own sin and guilt and shame, the invitation this morning is to go to Christ. Go to Christ. The weight of your sinfulness is a heavy, burdensome, enslaving yoke. Christ invites you to take on his yoke. For it is easy and it is light. And as Christ liberates us from the bondage of sin, the bondage of oppression, the bondage of of addiction and enslavement, he brings us into everlasting peace. Every boot, Isaiah says, of the tramping warrior will be silenced. Silenced. Every soldier's blood-stained garment will be used as fuel for the fire. As Isaiah says elsewhere, swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into fishing hooks. You see, the messianic deliverer, the promised king, what he brings us is justice and peace and freedom into the world. You see, this is the second aspect of Jesus' ministry, of his kingship, of his liberating work that we also have to recognize this morning is that the effects of Jesus' sin-conquering death, yes, it brings us liberation from sin, but it also signifies the coming justice of Christ's reign. You see, we live in a world even now where the powerful prey upon the weak, where injustice abounds all over the place, And as Christ brings us liberation from sin, he is also bringing with him freedom, true justice, and freedom from oppression. And as we will discover, his kingdom will be one of justice. This is the perfect government for which we long. It comes through Jesus. And as Jesus will come back, he will overthrow the tyrants of this age, and he will establish his country. So Jesus liberates the oppressed. He liberates those bound by sin, but he will also bring about justice on the earth through his reign. And though the liberation from sin is given to us now, if you trust in Christ this morning, you can, you can be free from your sin. You can receive forgiveness from Jesus by trusting in him at this moment. But we do have to say that this anticipation of the just, righteous reign of Christ, this element of social justice, if you will, This will never fully come to be until Christ the King returns. Many Christians today are really very passionate about many of these social justice issues. Issues like abortion, racism, sex trafficking, poverty, you name it. And there are a lot of areas of injustice in the world. Indeed, these are issues that as Christians that we should be concerned about, that we should be seeking to bring justice towards and work towards. But we have, or we have to be careful. And we must understand that this sort of perfect justice 
that we long for and that we ought to be working towards, that will not come completely until Jesus returns. Only he can bring about the true justice, the true peace for which we long. So as we seek to do justice today, we must realize that the justice that we try to do in the world is merely pointing to the greater justice that's to come when the king returns. And if we want people to truly be liberated, we must continually and constantly be pointing them to the king that is coming and heralding his arrival and telling them that it is only in Jesus we can be liberated and that true peace will come. So our pursuit of this ideal of justice as a church, as a civilization, is always going to be limited in scope. We can't deal with the sinfulness of humanity, but Jesus can, and he will. The true liberator for the oppressed is Jesus, and we can never forget this as we serve, minister, and evangelize our day and age. So Jesus liberates us, but this leads us to to consider another aspect of of this eternal king in verse 6 through 7. And we see that Jesus reigns as the divine king forever. This divine king forever. Again, remember, think about this as Isaiah is slowly kind of unwrapping the identity of this, this king. We see initially, right, that hope is coming, justice is coming, the light is going to shine. And then we see that this, this him, whoever this him is, he's going to break the rod of his oppressors. And it's not really until verse 6 that we really discover who all these promises that we've been talking about are really concerning. It's not until verse 6 that we discover that all these wonderful promises of hope, light, and liberation come as a result of the promised sign of Emmanuel given back in chapter 7. Here we see that all of this is going to come through God's promised king. Look, Look at what it says. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. You see, God's gracious gift His great remedy for solving the problem of darkness in the world, God graciously gives us a a baby, a child. He gives this gift to us for our sake. That God's gift to you and to me, He gives us a king, the promised king, the king that we long for, the king that we need. And so as this prophecy continues, we see that this, this is no ordinary king that Isaiah is talking about. This is no ordinary God. This is no human king. There's a lot of Old Testament scholars that try to take the Emmanuel child in chapter 7 and say, well, he refers to Hezekiah or some other other reign of some other monarch in Israel or Judah. And as you keep reading Isaiah, you're like, no. (laughs) Like you get to chapter 9 and you read the description of this king and this this is no human description here, is this? This As we read Isaiah 9, we see this is no mere human. What we see in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, is the astonishingly, miraculously, surprisingly, we see the wedding of the deity and the humanity of this promised king. The incarnation of Christ, prophesied and anticipated all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. This is no ordinary king Isaiah is talking about. This is the divine king. This is the Messiah. This is, this is Jesus that Isaiah is referencing here. So we see like as we read this passage, we see that it's upon the shoulders of this divine king will be the government. He will rule and he will reign. And then we get this, this fourfold description where we see the mingling of humanity and deity together. Look at the description. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, this is, those aren't titles you give to people, right? This is no ordinary king. And within each of these titles help capture the true identity of this divine king that the Lord is going to give. So let's, let's think about each of these titles for a moment. The title, Wonderful Counselor. Of course, this refers to Jesus' divine wisdom. His divine wisdom, that Christ's wisdom exceeds that of even King Solomon himself. The knowledge of Jesus has no peer. He has perfect counsel and advisement. They're without fault. And as Christ rules, he does so with divine wisdom. Not human wisdom, but divine wisdom bringing everything according to his purposeful conclusion. The title Mighty God refers to the Messiah's divine strength. Within Christ rests the entire strength of deity bodily. He is the creator God in the flesh. The word become flesh, as, as John would tell us in the beginning of his gospel. And as God in the flesh, Jesus wields complete and total omnipotent power that no one can match the power of Christ in his arm, that what he desires to do through his divine wisdom and plans to do through his divine wisdom, this king also has the power to bring it to pass. He has the power, the ability to do just that. The title, Everlasting Father, refers to his divine love. But this king, this Messiah, he's wise beyond our imagination. He has strength that we can't even comprehend, but yet he's, he's tender, he's loving, he's kind. He's a, a gentle king. He doesn't speak harshly, but he speaks lovingly and tenderly to his people. He cares for his people like children, like a father, caring for their every need. And then we see the title Prince of Peace. Of course, this refers to Jesus and to his divine goodness. Christ is the benevolent king who brings lasting peace to his people. That through the reign of Jesus, there will be no conflict. There will be no war. There will be no armies. There will be no more blood. There will be no need to imagine a world with any of those things. The squabbling kingdoms of men will cease, and Christ alone will reign, and all peace will be brought upon we see Jesus in this fourfold description. We see that he has divine wisdom. We see that he is the mighty God, divine strength. We see that he's the everlasting Father, divine love. The Prince of Peace is divine goodness. This is who Jesus is. The Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time. And at Christmas time, this is what we celebrate the, the enfleshment, the incarnation of Christ. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. His eternal deity is, is wedded to humanity at his birth, and there is nothing more human than being born as a child. And as Jesus is born into this world, we see that he is completely, totally, 100% God. But he is also fully human as well. He is one of us, born unto the Virgin Mary. One of the songs we love to sing this time of year is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. She could start singing it if I, I solicited a few of you to do so. But one of the, the verses there is just so beautiful, right? That gets to this truth. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. 
pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. This is who this king is. This promised divine ruler, this anticipates the Messiah. This Messiah who is divine, but he's remarkably human as well. And in the arrival of this child born to us is Emmanuel. God is with us, with his people. Emmanuel comes to reign and to rule as the divine king forever. And in verse 7, we are told that of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, as Isaiah describes the reign of this king, we see that this Christ, Christ's reign will be a permanent reign, right? Again, kingdoms come and go, they totter, the nations rage. But when Christ establishes his kingdom, there will be no more tottering, no more raging. The perfect, lasting, everlasting kingdom will come. And no one will overturn Jesus' kingdom once he establishes it. Satan cannot reverse it. Our sin will not destroy it. No one will rebel against Christ and his reign, for he has made us to be fitting and righteous citizens of this holiest kingdom by his own blood. And so the promise of this everlasting dynasty of, of David, all of it finds its fulfillment in the true son of David, who is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Messiah. He is Christ the King from this time forth and forevermore. And the arrival of this kingdom is already here. friends. The arrival of this kingdom happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus arrived as the babe born of Mary in Bethlehem. And Jesus is the kingdom. He's the kingdom. He's the king and he's the kingdom himself. He is here and he is now. And while at the same time, in this new covenant age, we live and we await the return of this king. We await for the consummation of Christ's kingdom at the end of the age. So the kingdom of grace began when Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago. The kingdom is here. The king is here. The king has come. But the king will return. And at the appointed time, when Jesus returns, then and only then will the sweet victories, joys, and liberation that we long for, only then will it come to pass. And that trumpet sounds when Jesus comes again. On that glorious day, we gloomy saints, inflicted with anguish today, we will receive rest and joy at the abundance and permanence of Christ's kingdom. There will be everlasting peace. His government will increase and grow and expand throughout all eternity. You see, heaven will not be a static place of dull routine where you play your harp on a cloud for a million years, right? That sounds terrible. That's not what heaven's going to be, right? Heaven will be a dynamic. It'll be an expansive as the reign and rule of Christ will bring greater expansion and elicit greater awe from each of us for all of eternity. Each century, as we live in this kingdom that is to come, each century you will discover new insight, new knowledge, new glory to behold about Christ the King. His glory will be forever enlarging forever expanding, forever encompassing, forever enveloping, forever engulfing. 
and those who turn from their rebelliousness and sin. Those who submit to Christ today in faith. That's you. You will be welcomed and accepted into this glorious kingdom all by God's lavish grace. And in case there is any doubt, any doubt in your mind that, well, maybe this, maybe Isaiah didn't really know what he was talking about. Maybe these promises seem too good to be true. Maybe this won't really happen as Isaiah has described. Well, Isaiah ensures that we don't think that. As we see at the end of verse 7, how how is all this going to come to be? Who's going to do this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's hot, boiled passion to redeem and to rescue sinners ensures us that God will accomplish what he promised. He will accomplish his purposes. He will do this for the glory of his beloved son, Christ the eternal King. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we, we know that this world is broken and fallen. Lord, we see the effects of our sinfulness, Lord, all over this world. And Lord, as we look to the governments, the teetering and tottering governments of men, not just today, but for centuries past, Father, we long for the King. Not just any king, but the promised king. The king who will take away all gloom and anguish. Who will lift up all sorrow and despair. Who will bring an increasing kingdom of perfect justice and peace. A divine king. The Messiah, Christ the Lord. And Father, we believe that the king has come. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. Perfectly God. Perfectly man. Whole and complete in every way. One of us, yet fully divine. And Father, we believe that Jesus has come. And Lord, that by his death upon the cross that he established his kingdom, that he laid the founding stone of this kingdom poured out in his own blood. And Father, we believe that anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in this Christ can be liberated from the oppression of sin and the enslavement of sin that they are now under that the judgment that they're experiencing can be lifted, and Lord, that you can forgive and redeem and restore and make new all through the blood and sacrifice of your King. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus, who is yet to be cleansed, who is yet to be set free from sin. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would call them unto yourself, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin, and Lord, that they would turn from that sin. And trust in Jesus this morning. And Father, I pray, Lord, for those of us who have been cleansed, who have been liberated, who have been made citizens of this eternal kingdom. Father, we long, we long for Jesus to return. Lord, as we live in this broken, fallen world, each pain, each dark day, each moment of despair, Lord, may you fill our hearts with hope as we long the await of the return of the resurrected King. And He is resurrected. He is risen. And so, Father, we pray that as we approach this Christmas season, Lord, that these prophecies of Isaiah would fill us with such great hope. Lord, we know that You will do this. It is by Your zeal, Your passion, that You will accomplish all that You promised You will do. And so, Father, as Your people, we long for Your King to return. And, Father, we pray that we would be about the King's business and spreading this kingdom until he returns again. 
Father, we love you. We thank you for Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.